Hello and welcome to episode 364 of the Crate and Crowbar, a PC gaming podcast being recorded on the 31st of March, 2021. I'm Marsh Davis and this evening I am joined by Graham Smith. Hello, it's me, I'm here. How are you? I am super duper. <laughs> it's always a hazardous question to ask in the second year of lockdown, but um, let's talk about um, CD Projekt's company strategy video because could there be anything more exciting than a company <laughs> strategy video yeah it's it's it was 25 minutes long as well and they put it out alongside i think like a, a pdf of about 35 slides um wow. but uh, i listened to a lot of these things and this one had no particular product announcements and they don't usually but uh, as far as strategy videos go or announcements or whatever um it was more interesting than most it was a, a total response to cyberpunk 2077's messy launch basically without ever really explicitly drawing the dots to it you know they never said oh well, cyberpunk was a fucking mess wasn't it let's try not to do that again guys um but every point they went through basically <laughs> was in some way responding to that so for example they said that um, they're going to establish an independent uh, engine development team and expand the responsibilities of their chief technical officer, which is presumably a response to the fact that Cyberpunk 2077 was really buggy. They said that they were going to re refocus on creating a caring environment for their employees. They said they'd always cared about their employees, but now they were going to do so more so, um, <laughs> which seemed like a response to all oh, the, the stories around mandatory crunch in the run-up to Cyberpunk's release. Um, they... The kind of biggest news, um, well, actually, before that, there was a, a change to marketing. They're going to stop talking about their game so long before launch um, because, obviously, they announced a bunch of features for Cyberpunk 2077 that ended up then not actually being in the game, which is bad. And so, like the rest of the industry, they've learned that, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that. They say they might still tease, pro tease projects, um, launch before long before they actually launch but actual detailed information will come much closer to launch which you know all three of those things really sensible decisions to make for a company mm. of cd project red size um there were a couple of other more interesting bits though one was they had previously said back in 2019 that you know, their next big AAA game was going to be a multiplayer game, a standalone multiplayer game set in the Cyberpunk 2077 universe. Um, when they first mentioned this, people assumed that it was a, a mode that was going to be in 2077 that would come after launch. And then they said, no, it's going to be a standalone thing. They've now gone back on that and said, it's not going to be a big standalone multiplayer game. Instead, what they're doing is they're refocusing their teams and growing their teams so that they can work on the Witcher stuff and Cyberpunk stuff simultaneously. And as part of that, they're going to develop multiplayer um, functionality into the engine so that they can add some sort of multiplayer element to all future games. Now, they didn't say what those multiplayer elements would be in any sense. Like, for all I know, they could be talking about adding online leaderboards or something and achievements, shareable achievements to their games. Um, 
but I assume not. Uh, like the, the previous assumption was that they were looking at GTA online and thinking, hey, we would like to make hundreds of millions mm. of dollars a year <laughs> from from yeah. something like that. So like, pre- presumably they still have something in mind along those lines, um, but they're not working on like a big standalone project anymore. You know, I, I suspect what was going to happen was that the Cyberpunk 2077 team was going to finish that game and then move over to building a new multiplayer game and, you know, all the content teams would be focused on that, whereas that's not the case anymore. Um, so it was pretty interesting. And then the, the parallel game development was the other interesting thing. They're, they're looking to acquire other studios. They announced that they've invested in a Vancouver studio called Digital Scapes that they've worked with before. And they're looking to, do, to carry out more mergers and acquisitions and to hire a bunch of people so that they can work on both Witcher stuff and Cyberpunk stuff at the same time and basically be a, a two-franchise studio um, forevermore. Hmm. Does that mean, I mean, did you get the sense that they are intending to produce a lot more content for specifically Cyberpunk 2077? Or does this mean new games under that banner? There was no mention of like, oh, we're going to make Cyberpunk 2078 and we're going to make The Witcher 4 or anything like that. What they laid out explicitly was the next year of updates, which was for The Witcher, it's they're doing an augmented reality mobile game called the witcher monster slayer and for cyberpunk they're doing free updates and patches and they're doing dlc a bunch of free dlc that'll come out across the course of the year and then they talked a lot about you know building out those franchises in a more general sense and so they talked about well we've got a witcher anime series we've got a cyberpunk anime series we're going to do more merchandise and there was next to the, the word merchandise there was a little picture of a funko pop um oh god <laughs> <laughs> and so like they're you know they're they're talking in more general terms like they're basically saying hey we are a company that makes the witcher stuff and cyberpunk stuff and we're going to do a lot more of both of those things um in whatever form that takes like presumably at some point down the line that's going to mean sequels or spin-offs for both those games do you i mean do you relish that do you or do you feel like that is a, a narrowing of their creative potential onto two franchises i mean i mean it, by definition, it's an outring of the yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge big fan of the Witcher games, really. I feel like I might be murdered for saying that, actually. Um, but I've just never clicked with them. And I know everyone loves The Witcher 3, but I played it for like six hours, and that was enough for me. Um, I would like more Cyberpunk, though. I, For all its flaws, for all its bugs, I had a lot of fun with that game. I would gladly take a sequel to that. Uh, you know, a lot of people I know who really are into the Witcher games are sort of nervous at the thought that they would make a Witcher 4 because they felt like Geralt's story was done and CDPR have previously said they don't intend to make any game, any more games with Geralt. But at the same time, those same people are kind of hoping that that means that they'll do something with Ciri or one of the other characters or, you know, to do something else within that world because everyone seems to to like the space i mean how about you do you do you hunger do you lust after scar tissue and long-haired men <laughs> <laughs> well i i do like uh i did like witcher 3 a lot i mean i don't know that i have a huge amount of loyalty to that uh fiction 
particularly. But I, I suppose it's inevitable that they they return to it and probably return to Geralt as well, given the success of the TV show. I can't imagine them losing the opportunity for that brand synergy. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I I don't know that just by virtue of those two fictions, I will be on board with whatever they, they do. I would be more interested in hearing about something completely new and different from them. It does seem like they're following a model that exists now. Like, obviously, Rockstar have Grand Theft Auto and they have Red Dead Redemption. And they used to do stuff like Bully and... Um, fucking rockstar table tennis and L.A. Noir to some extent um, but they seem to have boiled it down to now to just not we just TikTok between these two games and Bethesda obviously likewise between Elder Scrolls and Fallout for the last 10-15 mm. years have just bounced back and forth between those two although I know they're now working on Starfield the sci-fi one um and so I guess I'm not surprised that CDPR are kind of following in those footsteps and saying, hey, we're just we're going to focus on these two things. But there was something really exciting about the fact that they were making cyberpunk. Like part mm-hmm. of the reason why people got pumped by that was, hey, this is a big studio that have done it. Um, exciting things with the Witcher series that is now trying their hand at a different genre. And so it's a shame that that's not coming down the pipeline again because you know there are a lot of studios that want to establish new series or make games at that kind of scale but most of them don't most of them fail most of them make something at a kind of mid-tier level hoping that they can build towards that and then close down two years later you know um so it's yeah it's kind of a shame that they're if it was like cdpr in some senses they're moving into middle age uh and maybe that Mm. means a more mature company that will make fewer mistakes and treat their employees better which is great um but there is something a little bit less exciting yeah the other bit of news I wanted, well, I wanted you to talk about actually, because I don't really understand what it is, <laughs> was the news that Subrosa, Subrosa, uh, is mm. out um, in early access now, having already been out previously, but quietly. Yes. So I pretty sure I'm pretty sure I bought Subrosa direct from the developer. It's made by Cryptic C, which is just one person as far as I know, or it used to be just one person, Alex Austin. And I'm pretty sure I bought Subrosa from his website or something like eight years ago uh, and played it in the PC Gamer office, probably, <laughs> during a lunch break. And what it is, it's a really interesting idea for a game. It's set in an open-world city. It's, an, it's a multiplayer game where you form teams and your team is given a mission to say, go steal a disc from somewhere within the city. You break into an office or something like that and steal the disc with some information. And then you need to sell it to one of the other teams of players within the server. Uh, And then it's sort of playing with the risk reward of do you you know, arrange a, a, a meeting with someone and sell it to them. And they, when they buy it from you, the money that they give you is in a briefcase and they hand over the briefcase and you hand over the desk and, you know, 
probably you're meeting in like a car park somewhere and it's got it's all got this kind of um sort of reservoir dogs theming and that you're riding around with your pals in black cars talking over mobile phones and looking very serious and sunglasses and stuff like that you're probably meeting in a car park and do you make the trade and get back in your cars and drive away and everyone's made a bit of money and everyone's got what they wanted and everyone's happy or do you try and pull a double cross you know do you set up an ambush down the road where you know the cars with the opponent team is going to be coming from and try and have a shootout and steal the money and make away with both the disc and the money um and then how does that then play out further down the line when you've got to make future trades with other teams do they trust you or not um and what was like one of the one of the other things that was really interesting about it eight years ago was it's all very physics-y which was really novel at the time like not just physics-y in the sense of the cars wobbled but the actual animation of the people is physics driven as well um and it's it's a lot less novel now because lots of games do that sort of thing, um, but it still gives it a very different feel than most first first person shooters, um, and so yeah, it's been it's been in development and available to buy for a long, long, long time, and then a, a few years back, I think in like two thousand sixteen, two thousand seventeen, Devolver signed it and started helping with development or helping fund it or something i'm not sure and in that time it became available on steam but not the steam store i think you could still buy it maybe off-site somewhere maybe again just from the game's website directly um and so it's ha- it's had like 1500 positive steam reviews <laughs> over the last three four years and then this past week they announced hey, it's now in Steam Early Access. You can buy it on Steam. So there was a brief moment of confusion of like, didn't you announce this before, several years ago? <laughs> Isn't this already been on Steam? It took a little while to work out what exactly had changed, what exactly had happened. And certainly like the art style of the game has progressed a bunch since I last saw it. When I last saw it, it was, you know, the characters in it were very Minecrafty. Um, just straight up blocks whereas they're still very polygonal now but they look you know they look like ken dolls or something like that rather than (laughs) rather than cardboard boxes um but it's it's i never had a really successful game of it eight years ago whenever i last played it i assume it's come on leaps and bounds since then so i can't really hold that against it um but it was always it was doing interesting things with you know social social doubt in multiplayer games long before you know daisy for example came along and kind of made that a much more common feature that's weird i mean i kind of understood the the pitch but it sounded too grandiose to be plausible (laughs) 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 that it's this freeform sort of mexican standoff generator um, I assumed that, but it, it does not explain itself particularly well in the video. But I, I assumed uh, that the those kind of Mexican standoffs were more kind of compartmentalized as matches, you know, in an explicit way. But they aren't. It's just completely free roaming. Uh, the, the world is is a big open world city with lots of buildings that you can go inside. Although it's very bare bones in terms of the visual presentation and there are npc cars driving around the streets in a basic ai simulation of traffic and stuff like that and so 
I think you are given missions, which will be go to this building and an object will have spawned in there that you need to go in and get. But then I'm pretty sure, sh- and then you'll be told, hey, you can trade. Uh, again, it's been a long time since I played it, but you'll be told something like, hey, trade this with this other team. But where in that world you set up that meeting is up to you as the players. And so I think there's some like back and forth communication between teams. And it's not just two teams within the world. As far as I remember, it's multiple teams. And oh, so wow. so okay. you're not lots, but you know, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure there can be like four teams in a world. And so, you know, you can double cross one, but then not double cross off the next. Or you can, you know, get a reputation within the server or whatever for doing a good deal with one people but then double cross the next people and then that sort of stuff and as you're driving to and from missions or meetups you will pass you know other four-door saloons with guys in zoot suits driving by on their way to their own drop somewhere and then they're, they're always different from the npcs i take it you could always spot another player Yes, yeah. I don't I like. Uh, I don't know if the actual car models are different, but certainly in the way they drive, <laughs> like the, <laughs> well, the yes, yeah, the yeah. NPC cars will follow straight lines, <laughs> and the players will be whipping about all over the place. Um, and like part the, how freeform it is is partly why I never had a great time with it because it feels like you need the right group of players that are going to choose to buy into that kind of experience. And most of the time when I was playing it, it would be a mixture of, you know, maybe some message board people from PC Gamer and maybe some random public people. And a lot of the time people would just run around firing their gun, shooting everyone a lot. (laughs) And the the fantasy of it falls apart and any kind of, potential for social bargaining or whatever you want to call it uh, just goes with it oh it'd be interesting to see uh, what happens to its steam reviews now that it's open to the great unwashed masses because i assume it's cultivated an audience of people uh, who are really into that fantasy and now they may find that fantasy broached by people who are who are rather less committed to it um it, it needs streamers to adopt it like, right, yeah, because they tend to like. Uh, what was the what was the ghost game that was that's still popular now, but it got really big about six months ago? Phasmophobia. Yeah, phasmophobia. I think was a good example of this, where it's a game that's more fun if the players buy in to the mm. kind of experience the game wants them to have, and a lot of the time. It's streamers. If you see a streamer that's taking it seriously and having a great time, they become the model for the behavior of the players. And Subrosa theoretically should be a really good game for that. Like if you've got a streamer who's got like a, a community or some friends that they stream with, a lot like Among Us, they could you know mm. climb into that game and have have fun, physicsy, backstabbing japes basically. Um, and so I, I feel like if it takes off there, then uh, the audience will follow with it. Um, the developer Alex Austin, he's made a bunch of like interesting things. Uh, do you remember Golf? Question mark. Nope. Uh, golf? Question mark was or is a first-person golf game set in a kind of polygonal wireframe world. <laughs> um, a uh, really striking look, and uh, I mean, first-person golf is pretty fun, and you've got a golf cart, 
and you kind of zip around tracks. I think you, uh, courses rather. <laughs> um, I think you could play it multiplayer when it finally came out. Um, I, I think he did a similar first-person hockey game, multiplayer hockey game, where each person on the on the rink on the ice was actually controlled by an individual person. That was fun too. Um, he's done lots of physics-y multiplayer stuff, basically. We should give this a go. We should. And I bet we could get a good game going with the Discord community. Mm. Intriguing. <laughs> I've also been watching Shrek. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> Um, this is, I mean, I just think this is funny, but I was bored at the weekend and so I downloaded Wallpaper Engine. Do you know what Wallpaper Engine is? I've seen other people who are seen friends of mine playing this, but I had no idea what it was, no. It's a utility rather than a game, um, but it's it's got like 300,000 reviews on Steam. It costs like £3 or something, and it's a tool that you run on your computer 24-7 which is why a lot of people, why it gets, does very well on Steam charts and stuff like that, because it's got 13,000 concurrent users or whatever. Um, but it lets you have animated or interactive desktop wallpapers. And then there's a Steam workshop. And so people can, you know, take any MP4 and turn it into an, an animated desktop wallpaper or create little scripted things that respond to your music or your mouse position or that sort of stuff. Um, I don't really care about my desktop wallpaper <laughs> most of the time i don't have a desktop wallpaper but i was bored and i was poking around and there's over a million um a million things on the workshop for this game it's incredibly popular as far as i can tell about 999,999 of them are just anime girls <laughs> um but one of the first ones i found was shrek the movie shrek <laughs> uh-huh in a legal form in illegal form <laughs> a 92 megabyte download of the entire movie <laughs> um, with the title uh, the entirety of Shrek but for wallpaper engine <laughs> and it had been up there since December, it had over 300 re reviews, uh, a 5 star rating um, and yeah, it's, it was, it's just the entirety of Shrek and I still, just... I'm sorry, you're not joining the dots between seeing that and deciding to download it <laughs> how did that that whole transition occur. I was just curious. I pressed the, the I was pressed the subscribe button, um, and I, so it's actually on my desktop now. So it, if I minimize all the windows on my computer, it will start playing Shrek from wherever I left off when I last was watching it. Um, it's not a bad way to watch the film either. Like this, <laughs> you can't rewind it or fast forward it. You know, it's a desktop wallpaper, like I say, so there's no actual movie controls to it. But uh, there's, there's something quite pleasing about when you're doing tasks, just occasionally watching 45 seconds of a film that you forgot was playing in the background at all times, basically. Um, <laughs> it's been it's been deleted from Steam now because uh, I told the world about it. So it's been there for 
four months or whatever and I've destroyed it I've destroyed the thing I enjoy which I knew was going to happen and it's it's it's, it's just it's just that this should have happened uh, but I it, it amused me that it was on there and the fact that there's over a million things on the Steam Workshop and next to no moderation seemingly oh god I'm worried about what else is is in the Steam Workshop when people are just uploading mp4 files basically Jesus Christ <laughs> well that sounds like a massive waste of time <laughs> um but I'm, I'm glad you um, i'm glad you uh, found uh, recovered some joy from this how does uh, shrek hold up as a as a film i've only i mean i've only seen about 30 minutes of it on my desk my desktop wallpaper so far um it's it's okay actually like i haven't seen it since I guess I, since I was a teenager when it first came out. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed that first 30 minutes. Which, what are your memories of Shrek? <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, they've been completely co-opted by all the subsequent memes. Yeah, that's I, how I, I felt. I, I can barely remember it at all. I can remember like uh, incre- incredibly poorly done machinima versions of Shrek. But that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's about it. Yeah, that's all I remembered and, you know like two or three jokes from it or something that the internet has driven into the ground and the fact that it's got that smash mouth song in it and so that it was actually like those 30 minutes form a coherent narrative experience (laughs) i'm like oh oh okay this is quite good what have you been playing though (laughs) (laughs) uh i've been playing depener nocturne um Actually, can I just say how fucking insane it is that Microsoft haven't adopted the the hold key to bring up accented alternatives to letters, which is the functionality on, on macOS. You just hold down an E and it brings up all the different options. Hmm. Just sliding in that complaint at the at the top of this. Just you know, start with a sour note. I always say <laughs> because it will make what follows that much sweeter. Yum. What what is this game? Yeah, that's a good that's a good place to start. Um it's um well let me tell you who it's by. It's a game by uh, co-op. That's co-op with a K and an underscore instead of a hyphen. And they're a cool uh, studio based I think out of Montreal, in as much as anybody's based out of anywhere at the moment. <laughs> um and they make these kind of gorgeously art directed digital toys and delights, I would I would bracket them as possibly unfairly they're also making uh, goodbye volcano high which is a, which i think is a sort of talky adventure game which looks a bit like life is strange but uh, you can kiss pterodactyls um which is presumably the exact pitch that got it greenlit um and depener nocturne is what they deem to be a co-op mini which is to say it's a very short form uh budget game uh, perhaps more experimental, uh, which in this case means that it's more about the experience and the mood that it evokes rather than being some sort of intricately interactive thing. And the premise is that you uh, you are you are some sort of bipedal creature. Uh, <laughs> you have moved to a new town, uh, and in the evening, before your partner returns from work, you have snuck out onto the city streets to buy them a gift to help them settle in. And there's only one shop open, uh, and it's full of these eccentric objects which you can bring up to the counter to have described to you by the anthropomorphic salamander who works there. 
Um, and then you decide to buy one or several of them um, and you go home and you present them to your partner and they like them. And that's it. That is the whole game. <laughs> it's it's absolutely lovely. You can you can like change the radio station uh, in the shop and you can pet the cat. Um, uh, and the, well, actually, and there is one other thing I, I really love about it, which is that when you go back, when you sorry, when you go into the shop for the first time, the assistant greets you with a bonsoir, and you can either say bonsoir or hello. Um, but if you pick the former, they will continue speaking to you in French. And I was momentarily pan- panicked by this because I, I thought I'd like hard lock the game into French mode, uh, which my GCSE probably couldn't <laughs> quite cover. And so I immediately kind of looked in the menus to see if I could switch twi- back. But there was there was nada. Um, <laughs> or rather, rien. Um, but then you uh, carry on talking, and your character can just say, "Yeah, sorry, I don't understand." And you <laughs> switch back to English, which just amused me because it because it, it, it exactly it tracked the emotional arc that uh, I've always felt. Uh, you know, when I feel shame, when I'm mistaken for somebody much smarter than I actually am, whilst I'm on a holiday. Um, but anyway, that's like that is like the interactive apogee, 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 apogee. Of the game, really, like it looks beautiful, uh, like all their games, and uh, the items are pleasingly odd, and it really captures that feeling of like finding uh, a, a, a strip lit pocket of intimacy in a in a city at night uh, when all the streets are empty and deserted. Um, and I, I, I recommend it, like as um as a thing that costs the same as a pint and takes about as as long to play as a leisurely pint might take to drink. Um, but I wanted to mention it uh, specifically because it sort of chimed with a tweet I saw the other day <laughs> by um, the uh, designer Teddy DF, who I think worked on Hyperlight Drifter. Um, they did, and other yeah. things? I don't, I don't know what else they worked on. But um, anyway, quoth they... Thinking about how 15 years ago, game design discourse was like, games don't have a violence problem, for to shoot a gun is the purest mechanic of interaction. And now, every game is like, what's up, fuckers? You can fish and pet this goat, and that's the game, okay? And that's his tweet. Um, And I think there's a sort of little bit of straw mannishness to that, because I don't know that it was the... Uh, the the sort of mainstay analysis that the purity of shooting a gun mitigated games violence problems so much as explained its prevalence. But I think if you sort of pick all the straw from that argument, then there is something fun to sort of think about there, which is that games have got so much more accepting of really low levels of interactivity. And like, I know that low key games have always existed like Seaman or even like Tamagotchi or Clickers or whatever. But I think it is true that there has been this sort of move towards sort of artistically accepted, artistically resonant games, um, which are incredibly low on the interactive scale. And that sort of broadened the understanding of what games could be and so forth. But uh, it was like a few years ago that Walking Simulator was an absolute derogatory term. And now it's just like a tag on a Seam store that you, you know, plenty popular. And I don't know, I just sort of wanted to know what you thought about this, because I, I, obviously there's one thing that's changed, which is that there are just more low interactivity games uh, pitching their tent now because the tools sort of preference that as the barrier to entry overall gets lower. Um, and presumably those games sort of need to make a case for their existence by by going 
beyond the allure of the interactive complexity that they don't actually have. But do you, I mean, do you feel like there has been a sea change in this regard? And did you know when it happened? And is it because of demographics or is it because of the tools or is it just, just I don't know, better writing? Uh, all of the above, probably. Like, there's definitely been a change in this. I feel like there's different, I mean, uh, there's different trends. When I got into games journalism, for example, back in 2005, uh, a lot of the conversations in PC gaming around that time were about concerns of consolification of video games, that uh, our our beloved PC games were being dumbed down in the effort to make them more accessible. And one of the main examples of this was Gears of War, for example, how successful that had been on Xbox, and now every game was aping it and becoming this kind of third-person cover shooter and l- losing maybe some of the RPG elements or the, the stranger like or deeper levels of interactivity that maybe you you had a few years before when it immersive sims felt like the hot new thing. Um, there was also there was lots of conversations around that time about the value of quick time events, which developers were putting in their games to make them more accessible to people, to like convey exciting moments by having you hammer the X button when a zombie was trying to bite your neck or whatever, uh, which you know, in some respects, where is a you know a, an interesting interactive way of representing that experience of like trying to push something off uh but people really hated qtes a lot of the time and felt that they were reducing games down to simple button presses um but i feel it felt to me like that like that period there was a lot of insecurity about what games were and where their value lied and this fight between cinema and interactivity and whether games needed to be super interactive in order to be justifiable as video games as opposed to just being movies you watched with some QTEs spread across them. But it feels like that period was like angling towards more accessible and richer forms of expression through games. and I, I, I feel as now like the fact that we have these these games, which are, you know, obviously they they get rid of the, the combat almost entirely for most of these kinds of games that I think we're talking about here. But the fact that they're just comfortable to have the interactive element be something expressive, like petting the dog or taking a photo, if it feels like it's a continuation of that trend towards QTEs back then, but a much more confident form of it. Um, like uh, am i making sense in like drawing a connection yeah i think so yeah yeah i do he, he, I, just to read you, uh teddy df's follow-up tweet it's in inverted commas press x to smile at dog 2010 games pundits colon this is shallow and where is the player agency in juice <laughs> and 2020 colon standing ovation um <laughs> which i think is kind of true <laughs> yeah i i feel like no, PC Gamer was definitely guilty of this. We were snobs. I think we were snobs about a lot of this stuff back in 2005 through 2008, nine, maybe something like that. Those few mm. years where there was a real resistance to what felt like shallower interactions. And then I think it took the expanse of indie games essentially to, to show that, oh, actually these ways of interacting with the game can be used 
for, for better purposes than maybe some of the earlier games were, were using them for. I remember writing about, I wrote an article about this, about Receiver, the original Receiver. Yeah. Um, asking for more expressive ways of interacting with game worlds, like pointless. I wanted pointless button presses because Receiver is <laughs> a game which takes place in a set of rooftops in which you find cassette tapes in which this nebbish voice drones on mysteriously about your mission while each button on the keyboard does something with your gun. Like it's a very expressive weapon essentially because you have to, you know, cock it manually. You have to put each, each bullet in the magazine manually. You need to put the magazine in and pull back the thingy. I don't know much about guns. <laughs> uh, you know, like these are all bespoke button presses and I wanted that to go further. Like this felt like a game where there should be a button to take a long drag on your cigarette. Like if you felt like you should be able to look across the cityscape and do something like that in order to like express your feeling. Uh, And, you know, I I watch a streamer who plays Satisfactory and that's a game where you, you know, float around and use various magical tools, but the kind of default thing to be holding in your hand is a cup of coffee. Uh, and so you can and you can drink from it and so like you basically look across this massive factory that you've been spent the last six hours building take a little sip of your coffee as you survey a job well done like like that's that's now baked into to games much more broadly in a way which Mm. i think is really excellent uh and yeah i i i think 10 years ago, a lot of us that maybe now champion things like Dip and Your Nocturne would have maybe scoffed at it. I mean, it doesn't help that it maybe would have been like a three-hour chunk in the middle of a Capcom game and it would have been terribly written and fucking <laughs> awful. Uh, but I think those trends have actually worked. And I, I mean, again, again, I guess you can bring it back to Bioware. You know, like Bioware, people complained as they shifted from the kind of Baldur's Gate, maybe Dragon Age 1 era into the Mass Effect era because Mass Effect was simpler and more accessible in some ways. Uh, And there was, of course, uh, an enormous, ridiculous, misogynistic controversy when one of the developers said, hey, these games should probably have a mode that just lets you skip the combat entirely and just lets you have narrative stuff. That was... was like a complete complete shit show <laughs> um but i think it's completely right and it's a completely fair comment and i think the mass effect games were successful like they did what they set out to do and that they did broaden the audience for games and there are a bunch of people who are now making games who got into games through the mass effect series and then of course i mean like after that is uh, all the telltale stuff you know that broadened it again mm. by just focusing on on narrative. And where's Gone Home in this mixture? Yeah, I mean, I think that's alongside for sure. That's part of it. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I just uh, I just downloaded uh, the Amnesia Rebirth, which is uh, uh, launched an update which allows you to basically turn the monsters off. <laughs> yep. It's a horror game. Um, but apparently this this is uh, this rejigs it in order to be more like a sort of Indiana Jones style tomb exploration with very very low stakes, uh, and uh, that's solely the reason I'm going to play the game. Yep, 
Yeah, I'd love that. I'm, I'm not. I don't particularly enjoy horror games because I'm a big wuss, and yeah. um, the developers of that they did it with their previous game. Soma, yeah. yeah. I still need to play that. That sounded really interesting. But I never got around to it. They're basically a bunch of people that said. Oh, running away from monsters all the time is really tedious, but the story and the philosophy that this game is exploring is really fascinating. I really love it. And so they released a, an update for that, which added a mode that just removed the monsters from it. And mm. yeah, I, I, I genuinely think now a lot of games could benefit from just deleting about 50% of their systems. <laughs> I'm really yeah. fascinated as part of this by the Playway games. Are you familiar with any of these? No, I don't think so. Playway are, uh, I'm going to say, Eastern European publisher, which publish sims, simulators, like uh, train station renovation simulator <laughs> um, and house flipper is maybe oh, more, right. the more popular one, that sort of yes, stuff. Yes, I, I, I am familiar, yeah. Uh, and they do hundreds of these games. And they're games where you click to perform interactions, but there is no skill involved in the click. And, you know, you'll click on a wall to make a bit of dirt disappear from it, or you'll click six times before the dirt is gone completely. Um, and you'll do that, that kind of action. Everything is a click, basically. You know, to pick up an object is a click. To use that object is a click. You just have to, it's all context sensitive. And there's no, there's almost no system beneath that. Like, uh, a lot of the animations are canned in a way that make the game seem almost fake. Because if you're picking up a plank of wood in most games, that's a system that says, oh, if there's a, plank object anywhere in the world and you're standing within a certain proximity of it you can pick it up and you know it will maybe shoot towards into your hands based on wherever you're standing whereas in these games no there is just one plank spot <laughs> and it's a, a pile of infinite planks and that's the only place you're going to pick up planks and so we're not going to bother writing code that allows you to pick up planks from all different areas or anything like that it's like no you can only stand in one, this one spot and click and a plank appears in your hand and the animated is the animation is completely pre-canned and then beyond that there's almost no like consequences to your actions. They're not games in which you can fail most of the time. Some of them have some sort of very basic economic simulation. So for example, Mech Mechanic Simulator was a game that came out, uh, which was published by Playway just this past week, in which you're clicking on a bunch of screws and bolts on a robot leg in order to dis dismantle it until you find the glowing red bit inside it which is broken which there's a little mini game where you fix it and then you click to put all the parts back together again and outside of that you can then you know uh, sell that robot leg as a refurbished thing to get money which you can then use to buy new parts to fix future robot legs so there's a kind of very basic economic simulation around it but there's no real bankruptcy or anything like that it's just a little tiny drip of progress and I, I play the, I play some of these games and I watch trailers for these games and they remind me of two things one is like the kind of fake video game that would get made for an episode of CSI <laughs> where, where it's like obviously not a video game it's obviously just an animation studio who's had to knock something together that looks vaguely video gamey over the course of about three day deadline um the other thing is those 
like browser games you get for kids where it's like Elsa from Frozen has fallen down some stairs into a rose bush. (laughs) Now you've got to click to remove the the thorns from her hand and click to apply the ointment and click to apply the bandages and now now Elsa's happy again. Well done. Like that's what House Flipper is. That's what Mech Mechanic Simulator is. That's what all of these games are. It's just that, but for dads, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) And they're they're just incredibly thin level of interaction to these games but there's hundreds of them they all review really well for like steam user reviews they're obviously selling a lot of copies for them uh, and like that's enough like i think that's fine like i don't necessarily want to play a lot of these games or maybe any of these games myself but I feel like I would have been really snobby about them and about their existence 10, 15 years ago in a way now where I sort of appreciate what they're doing and think they're successful at it. Mech Mechanic Simulator is also almost a game I actually want to play, it's the thing. It's too basic for me, basically. But like in terms of theming, I completely get it. They've also they've got one which is like um airplane disaster simulator or something like that where it's like shows you a cut through of a 747 jet and then something will happen like the cabin will catch fire and then you've got to click to make decisions about what should happen and <laughs> and uh, either the the plane will blow up and because you've made the wrong choice in which case it instantly reloads or you'll save the day and everyone on the plane claps <laughs> <laughs> i did see one of these which was a traffic stop simulator um, I think it was uh, the, you, you played Russian cops, um, but it, yeah, I was, I was quite intrigued by it. I haven't downloaded it yet, <laughs> but maybe I should. These turn out to be the hugely popular fantasies. It's not, it's not, people don't want to be the action hero where they fight zombies. It turns out mostly people still want to be policeman, fireman, <laughs> pirate. <laughs> Mech repairer. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you see now. Now, now we've gone down this route. I'm I'm less inclined to say that this is is a good change. <laughs> <laughs> if I convinced you of the opposite, <laughs> yeah. What have you been playing, Graham? I've been playing Puyo Puyo Tetris Two. <laughs> it's very funny to me that I'm playing this game. Um, it's. Uh, it's the most arcadey thing, the most video game, the most video game, video game imaginable, really. Um, Puyo Puyo Tetris uh, is a mashup of the two puzzle games in its name, Tetris and Puyo Puyo. They're both games in which you rotate shapes in order to make matches, and Puyo Puyo Tetris hangs them in a narrative framework via its story mode um, but it's primarily about head-to-head battles um, and it sort of fixes some of my problems with Tetris yeah. <laughs> some of the reasons why I've not never got into Tetris properly before um, Have you got into Poyo Poyo before? I've played Poyo Poyo before but I don't remember why or when I feel like I must have played it on Mega Drive or something like that mm. twenty something years ago. Uh, I don't think I'm I have. Is it is it a match three? Is that what it is, or is it is it specifically about shapes? I don't because because they the, the things you're dropping into the grid aren't uh, shaped bricks, are they? They're little blobs with faces. 
little coloured blobs with faces, yeah, that fall two at a time. So there could be a, a green blob and a red blob connected to each other, dropping down, and it's match four. So oh. the shape of it, the shape of them doesn't matter, but they've got to be at least four of the same colour um, connected to one another when they drop down. Uh, and I can't speak because it's been so long since I've played Puyo Puyo. I can't speak to how this iteration of Puyo Puyo compares to the kind of classic iteration of it. But Tetris to me, I've played probably dozens or hundreds of hours of Tetris for the last three and a half decades of my life. Like I played it originally on the original Game Boy. I played it on later Game Boys. I've played it a bunch of mobile phones. Not sure I've ever really loved Tetris. Uh, it's usually just been a thing to do in lieu of anything else. Um, and I've never been good at it. Like the, the, I don't know if all Tetris games do this, but what I remember of Tetris is you play, you make, you make some lanes, they disappear, and then eventually it gets too fast and I die. And like, is that your experience of Tetris? Are there, are there lots of other Tetris games where it doesn't, just get faster and faster and faster <laughs> is that just a mode i was playing you know it's been a while since i've played it so i don't remember if it's mode but i do remember that uh i was never as good as, as my sister and my sister uh completed it if such a thing can be done to the point where she got to see the dancing russian men doing their, their <laughs> jig whatever it is um i remember there's a, a rocket that takes off or something like that if you match a hundred lines or something i don't recall um <laughs> But yeah, I was never very good at it either. I've never been good at Tetris. And I always felt like, well, I died because it got too fast. So I guess what I need to do is I need to learn to make faster decisions. Like that's, that's I guess, where the skill of this game is. It's not just being able to make matches. It's being able to make matches at speed under pressure. Uh, and I just, no, I would just not be able to do that. I would just die when it got too fast, basically. Um, whereas Puyo Puyo Tetris, the Tetris that's in that, doesn't speed up because it's all about these head-to-head -head battles instead. So you will have, you, you can mix and match, basically. You can play Puyo Puyo versus Puyo Puyo or Tetris versus Tetris or Puyo Puyo versus Tetris. <laughs> and you've basically got two boards side by side on the screen you're playing one of them, your opponent is playing the other. You can play a multiplayer, you can play these different characters that exist in the narrative mode, which I'll come back to, or you can play those same characters in just like head-to-head duels that exist outside of the narrative. And as you make, say if you're playing uh, Tetris, as you match four lines, that will cause blocks to appear at the bottom of your opponent's board so that they basically now have a bunch of jumbled up blocks that move them further towards the ceiling that if they hit, they will it'll be game over for them. So it's a competitive thing. You're basically making matches in order to fuck with your opponent's board in order to cause them to lose. And therefore, it doesn't have to speed up. The, the, the equivalent for the Puyo Puyo game is that blocks drop down from the top. So you will, uh, in order to... to fuck with your opponent's board if you're playing Puyo Puyo you have to do chained matches which is where you make a match happen the Puyo Puyos drop down into a position which causes another match to happen 
which causes more Puyo Puyos to drop down into a position which causes another match to happen. And if you can chain three together like that, it will cause on a Puyo Puyo board blocks to drop down from above. And so if you're playing Puyo Puyo and you're you're trying to make a chain and suddenly blocks fall down from above and cover up what you were planning, you're fucked. You now you've got to completely adapt and to make those blocks disappear, you need to make matches in the spaces adjacent to them. So you need mm. to very quickly change your strategy in order to clear the board of these obstacles and then see if you're in a position to be able to kind of course correct and get back to the point where you can make a chain so that you can mess with your opponent again. And that kind of like back and forth means that there is a kind of uh, still like pressure, but it's a much nicer pace. I enjoy that more of like, Oh no, this stuff this happened on my board. I, I I wasn't expecting that I now need to correct for it. But everything is still going at the same speed. It's not just like an endless escalation towards death. Uh and it's allowed given allowed me basically to go to work out things about Tetris strategy and like where you should put blocks in order to leave options open to yourself that I've never been able to do before in any other Tetris game. Uh, and so that's been like fun. I've played this for like two and a half hours so far. And the, uh, the other thing that it has is uh, uh, this game has like 15 modes and an enormous complexity. And I have just described like 5% of the game. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's go deeper. Um, one of the things you can do in it is you can also play a mashup of Puyo Puyo and Tetris where the rules of both games are present on the board simultaneously and sometimes it will drop a Tetris block and sometimes it will drop Puyo Puyo blobs on the same board. Uh, that's just a fucking nightmare I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I haven't got anywhere with that. I haven't got anywhere with most of the stuff I'm now going to describe. Then there's the narrative mode, which is insufferable. <laughs> um, it's all these kinds of anime characters. It's it's a Sega game. It's a Japanese Sega game with these kinds of anime characters, which are at a certain pitch, personality-wise, where they're all sort of teenagers or sentient balls <laughs> really? uh, or t t teddy man-sized teddy bears wearing lab costumes and so there isn't like an anime alexei pajitnov somewhere in there. <laughs> <laughs> no that would be so much better <laughs> no it's just anime bullshit and there's like there's this guy and his thing he's is he's grumpy and there's this girl and her thing is that she's just upbeat all the time and there's this one and they're just How does... sad all the time and they talk to each other in these kind of um, speech bubble cutscenes which you have to click through in between except I don't click through them I just hit the skip button every time <laughs> because it's all voice acted and I hate every character and they're all too loud and they're shrill and the jokes are just that hey he's that angry guy and it's not funny in any way they're just all annoying people and I want them to die uh I don't. Th I don't feel like I'm missing anything by just skipping and going straight to the battles. How how does this connect to the act of playing Tetris or Puyo Puyo? Well, this is the next. Oh. This is the next layer. So during battles, you have your these characters have stats basically. So like your 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 little cutscene will be between 
you know, the schoolgirl and the teddy bear in a lab coat. And that will then lead into a battle where you are playing as different people, but maybe in this one, the schoolgirl against the, the teddy bear in the lab coat. And you have power moves that you can play and stat character stats. And so does your opponent. And they bear some effect <laughs> over the over the things that you can do in the game and i don't understand what those things are because although there is a lot of dialogue and a lot of narrative it's not ain't no part of it that i've ever read has introduced the concepts of how to play any of the games like not puyo puyo not tetris not this version that combines them not the RPG stat stuff and special abilities that sit around it. Instead, there's a separate mode called Lessons, which I guess is like a tutorial, but there's 160 lessons oh, or something God. like that. And I haven't. I confess it's my fault. I haven't played those. So. I, you know, if I'm going to commit to having a, a learning session of 160 lessons, it's going to be something of more consequence than <laughs> Poyo Poyo versus Tetris. I guess they're just they're probably just head to head matches that are framed in some way that describes what the heck is going on, which is really what I'd hoped for from the 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 single player story experience when I when I selected that as the mode I would go for. Um, but yeah, that means that there's also all this kind of character RPG stuff going on around it that I just I, I, it's unfathomable to me at this stage, despite the fact that I've played two and a half hours of it. Don't know where the abilities are. I know I can press right trigger in order to make abil- an ability happen, but I don't even understand what happens when I press it. Like there's an effect on screen and a character dialogue line, but I can't just can't find any consistency <laughs> between the actions I'm do- I'm doing and what's what then happens. Uh, but this is not dulling my enjoyment of the game too much. <laughs> <laughs> How? <laughs> because Tetris and Puyo Puyo are both pretty good games and I like the head-to-head version of it. <laughs> like I, I would quite happily strip away the other stuff and in the shallow end of the game that I'm playing in at the moment, my opponents don't seem to use special abilities that often. So I don't feel like I'm missing anything too much by the fact that I'm not using them either. <laughs> like I feel like I'm just playing a kind of competitive puzzle game and I quite like the puzzle game and I like that it's competitive rather than some of the systems that these games would normally use in order to escalate the stress of that experience. And so that's been that's been pretty nice. Um, I don't know if I'll keep playing it, mind you, <laughs> but it's been a pleasant two and a half hours, more or less. They should um, uh, they should have kept that entire irritating cast of characters, but made the narrative motivation that when you play against them, you're piling bricks onto them until you slowly <laughs> crush them and pop them like that girl in Akira. Just... <laughs> uh, I've seen Akira so many times, and every time that moment just. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, like uh, Sonic is, I, I don't know if he's in a DLC or if he just turns up later in the game, but because it's a Sega game, um, Sonic is in it, and I hate Sonic. Oh, yeah. So I, I would be well up I'd, for Yeah, the, I'd, I'd pay know. 50 quid to crush Sonic <laughs> with bricks. Yeah, or just, you know, he can survive. I'm just breaking him up behind my living room wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
I hate to hate Sonic. I shouldn't hate Sonic as much as I do. But no, I think that's rubbish. healthy. Like, leave him behind the, the chimney breast for Wallander to discover in 20 years' time or something. <laughs> I've got I've got a two... I've got two tabs open in my browser that I've had open for now for about four months and I can't bring myself to close them. And one of them is a Shadow the Hedgehog burger with the bun is black and there's a like a JPEG of Shadow the Hedgehog printed on a slice of cheese. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the other is a Sonic curry, which oh. is like rice alongside some sort of miscellaneous blue sludge. And it just looks like They've put Sonic in a blender and <laughs> served him up with rice. I do you remember uh, going to the, the Trocadero in London, which at the time was a Sega-owned um, arcade, was part of it. I remember they had a novelty uh, popcorn vendor uh, where one of the flavours was hedgehog. I feel like yeah, I feel like they're not thinking that through. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't catch Nintendo selling plumber flavoured <laughs> food, would you? <laughs> Shall we do questions from questions? Yeah, let's do it. Frederick says, Hello, Crate and Crows. With Baldur's Gate 3 slowly creaking open, I have a question to pose you. Why are computer RPGs so obsessed with constantly obsoleting my gear by giving me new, essentially identical swords and helmets with bigger numbers? Is it all the fault of WoW and Diablo, or is there a deeper reason? <laughs> I've never enjoyed these, this gear recycling process. And it's one of the things that put me off Divinity Original Sin. What's wrong with a good old equipment list from D&D and other role-playing books? What are your best examples of role-playing games that don't do this and that make finding magic items rare and special occasions? Cheers from Frederick, a.k.a. Fredericx on Discord. Hmm, I've got two answers to this question. One is a tabletop role-playing game that we played together years and years ago called Numenera. Mm. which had a good approach to magic items, I thought. It's a role-playing system where I think the I think the source book has a quote from Arthur C. Clarke, the famous quote from Arthur C. Clarke in the front in the front of it that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and that it's set on Earth millions of years in the future. Um where human civilization or human-like civilization has been wiped out multiple times and regrown. And so as you're traveling around the world, you will encounter objects that may be magical or they may be science fictional or they might be from our present era of history. But in any case, they strike the people in that world as strange alien artifacts that they've never seen before. They don't know how they work. They can't fix them if they break. And um, that means that they are all quite precious and exciting. And uh, I, I think there's some sort of system in there around certain items as well, where you have to use them within a certain time frame, because the, they... I can't remember if you maybe you remember the fiction around this, but it's almost as if they're irradiated in some way, and the longer you carry them, the greater the chance they have of overheating or exploding or triggering the thing in your pocket or whatever it mm. is, something like that as well. So, so you're finding these things; they're unusual, they're rare, they're one-time use, and you're compelled to use them and discard them relatively quickly. Uh, and I really like that. 
Yeah, especially as their their effects were so esoteric and bizarre, and sometimes very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, I mean, sometimes I think one of the items we found at one point was just a gun. Um, but part of the rules of the game are you're not allowed to call it a gun because right. that's not a word that would necessarily exist well, I, I, uh, I in the far flung future. I think I remember uh, Chris doing a great job of describing it <laughs> and <laughs> very very slowly twigging that it was a gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that was a great moment. Um, the other game I, I wanted to talk about is a video game. It's Neo Scavenger, which is set at some point in the future. Uh, at a time when it's post-apocalyptic, basically. You wake up from a cryo chamber. It's the future. The world has been destroyed. There's roving bands of strange alien-like people and also just bandits and stuff like that and cannibals. Um, and But it's an RPG. You go around, you collect items you talk to people you grow in power to a certain extent but the items that you're collecting are like a plastic bag some tins of beans a can opener for the tins of beans a bottle uh, a lighter with no propane inside it that sort of stuff and so it's all incredibly mundane and basic but oh you're so fragile in this game. So anything you find is precious and amazing. Like the plastic bag that you find is incredible because it means that you can carry more than two objects. Like normally you can just carry one item in each hand. You know, if uh, if you've got a, a bottle of water in one hand and a lighter in the other, you're just wearing a hospital gown. You've no pockets. And so finding a plastic <laughs> bag, you're like, great, I've now got four extra inventory slots. This is incredible. Um, and then it does inc- it really great things as well. Like plastic bags have a certain percentage chance to rip. And so you'll be, you know, walking along like um, Viggo Mortensen in the road with your plastic bag with your tin of beans and your can opener in it and then the bottom of it will rip and it will spill over the side of the road and it's it's the most tragic, horrible thing. It really is. I shattered uh, a mayonnaise bottle, mayonnaise glass in my kitchen the other day when I picked up my recycling and the bag's handles just immediately <laughs> fell off. It, <laughs> it only fell like... It, like four inches to the ground, but that was that was somehow sufficient enough for physics to completely shatter this item entirely across my floor. You see, if this was Neo Scavenger, that would trigger a chain of events which would eventually lead to you dying of dysentery <laughs> a few days later in the back of an abandoned car, <laughs> shivering as you shit and vomit yourself to death. Well, it's only been two days, so there's time yet. <laughs> I haven't I haven't massively lacerated my feet. But I did, I did get a cut on one of my fingers, so maybe that will get infected. That maybe that's what it does for me. If this podcast yeah. doesn't know up, go up. You'll know. You'll know why. It's, it's Easter weekend. Perhaps you shall rise again on Sunday. Could be. Could be. What about so his his question about whether this is the fault of Diablo and WoW? Um, I mean, yes, it is, isn't it? The the whole <laughs> obsoleting of gear. Um, I think that's just. I mean, it's uh, a very shallow artifice to to suggest a sense of progression, right? I mean, I, I don't know that. I would like to think that RPGs could uh, re- reverse this in some way, but I think that mechanic is now so indelible um, and effective at keeping most people engaged. Maybe not Frederick or myself, um, but that I, I, I don't think 
we're ever going to see the end of it, unfortunately. Um, I d- there are some games which sort of... Uh, the the recent Assassin's Creed games, I think they allow you to keep your gear um, and you can just upgrade them by going to a, a ironsmith or something like that and giving them resources. But even that just seems like a, a pointless, uh, pointless waste of time to me. There is something in the experience. Like, I guess... I guess these games are in some ways indebted to Tolkien and his works obviously have swords of legend and other, you know, magical items of great power that are, you know, mythic within the lore of those worlds. Because, like, we have lots of, for example, action games where you just have a fixed set of weapons in your inventory that doesn't change. Like, that's every first-person shooter, right? It's not like in Halo, you're constantly throwing away your weapon and picking up a, a plus-two version of that weapon. No, well, you just get, like... Destiny and Borderlands, I mean, they both... I mean, you know, those those yeah. experiments have been done on the first-person shooter. Yeah, definitely. But I'm saying, like, you know, this guy is saying why can't I have games in which that doesn't happen? And you know, there are lots of first-person shooters okay, yeah. like Half-Life or whatever where you know that doesn't happen in lots of other games like Metroidvanias or whatever where you just get one sword and then that's just your sword for the game and you don't think anything of it. What these RPGs are trying to capture is some sense of... I, I think what the, the, the reason that these systems work is that they create a kind of... Um, a soup, a sword soup, which from which you can then elevate sword croutons <laughs> that, <laughs> that feel special in some way because they exist within uh, a, a, a soupy morass of similar swords, basically. Which you don't you don't get that in a game which just has eight weapons and those are your eight weapons for the entire experience. Uh, and and so like there there is like s- something that these games are angling towards like other than just straight progression over the course of your three hundred hours playing it as in the case of Diablo or well I I feel like there is something there that maybe you would lose about the fantasy role playing experience if you did abandon that sort of system entirely. Well, I don't think or I don't think it's well. I, I'm not not sure that his uh, objection with it is that. Uh you get new, better items. It's specifically that there is an almost constant treadmill of making previous gear completely obsolete, um, whilst the new uh, items are not in any way tangibly different, but are represented differently only by their stats. Um, and I, I do think that is just not trying hard enough <laughs> to, <laughs> yeah. to represent the fantasy, the exact fantasy that you're talking about, which is alluring, I think. Uh, yeah, that's fair. Fuck these games, eh? <laughs> <laughs> you should still play Divinity Original Sin, though. It is really good. Although the the, the loot handling stuff is an absolute pain in the balls, but no, the, the, <laughs> the game is great. Stephen writes, Dear cats, cradles, and silver spoons. First of all, thanks for the pod. I rediscovered PC gaming during the last 12 months, and your podcast has been an entertaining and informative conduit back into the world of PC games, and has helped while away many otherwise dull lockdown hours. As for my question... Being professional games people, do you find it hard to separate your personal enjoyment of a game from your role discussing, critiquing, or otherwise analysing it publicly? Are there games you have a personal fondness for, even though you know they don't meet your own critical standards? I'm not in the industry myself, but I know I couldn't have reviewed Mass Effect Andromeda fairly, because despite its flaws, and there are many, I have a love for the series that I couldn't have objectively ignored. 
Other games you actively avoid discussing because you would spoil their personal appeal to you by exposing their issues or failings in the public forum. Cheers, Stephen. Hmm. I think for me, the uh, my personal enjoyment of video games is inseparable from nitpicking them to death. <laughs> that, <laughs> right, yeah. That that is part of what well, that's part of why I play games is is in order to have those kinds of critical thoughts about them and critical discussions about them. So I even if I didn't do this as my job, I would still be thinking about and approaching these games these way. And in fact the reason I do this as my job is that I couldn't help myself. <laughs> it's, it's, couldn't help myself from doing this as a teenager when I was just playing games anyway. Really, honestly, if I could do anything else, I probably would. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I've been sucked into this now. Um, so, and like, objectivity is is the devil anyway. Like, I don't think you want objective reviewers or even people who aspire to objectivity. I think it's absolutely okay to approach a review of a thing with personal biases, personal loves, as long as you can articulate those, as long as you can be open about them and explain them in the text of the review and then, you know, be open and honest about the game itself. Uh, And I think those two things aren't contradictory. I I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think the uh, having a personal fondness for games which don't meet your own critical standards is sort of an interesting one because we, we often talk about like sixes and sevens out of ten that we really mm. love um and i think that is a sort of an expression of that contradiction but i mean i don't think it is that they don't meet our own critical standards it's just that we are able to accept aspects of them as being laudable whilst also critiquing their other parts it's an expression of our critical standards loving a six <laughs> out of ten or a seven out of ten yeah, and it's true in all mediums. Like we don't talk about guilty pleasures so much in video games because I guess all video games, in some sense, are a guilty pleasure. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know that's a really common thing in in music or in film yeah. to recognise that something is maybe. I mean, you don't want to split art into low, low and high culture, but that something is trash, but you love it anyway. You know, tr- trash just no longer even has the negative connotations that maybe it once did. Yeah. Oh, I'm just trying to remember something. Something really clever that Chris said to me the other day. <laughs> what was it about? It was about something you watched. Oh, was it about the Snyder Cut? Ah, oh, yeah, the Snyder Cut. Yeah, so <laughs> Chris, I'm going to boulderize what Chris said now and horribly misrepresent it, but um, he, he suggested that the, the Marvel films were um, good entertainment, whereas... Uh, the Snyder Cut was bad art, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. I think is actually like a, a, a quite a kind of telling distinction. Um, maybe, you know, intentionally glib. I haven't seen any DC Universe film yet. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> some, at, some point, at some point, I will finish off the Fast and the Furious series, and that might be the next thing I watch. You know, there is such, uh, uh, such a gulf in quality, even between the Fast and the Furious films <laughs> and most of the DC films. Uh, yeah. Downwards, I mean. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have I have a lot of affection for Superman. I mean, like the Christopher Reeve Superman from the eighties, I guess, and even then, only two of those. When I think they made like six of them, um, so like, surely it can't. Surely, surely, a man flies. 
Well, that's that, I mean that that is the miracle of the DC uh, universe as it stands under Snyder's direction is that they've taken these completely uh, once iconic characters and made them feel like poor knockoffs of the, of the Marvel <laughs> universe's versions of them, uh, which is astonishing. Um, not a good achievement, but it's definitely an achievement. Actually, yeah. I don't I don't know that uh, all the DC universe films are worse than all of the Fast and the Furious <laughs> films. I think they're probably. I'm looking at my combined rating of the uh, uh, Mission Impossible, Born franchise, and Fast and the Furious films. Now, I think I think I probably slot the entire DC Universe catalog somewhere between Fast One and Fast Two, <laughs> which incidentally are the the second and third to last <laughs> in inequality things. What is the last then? Is that oh, it's Fast Three? Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's definitely the Tokyo worst. Drift. Tokyo Drift. Yeah, absolutely meritless piece of w- waste of film. Yeah. yeah, it's not even just a, a waste or meritless because that just sa- makes it sound benign in some way, like it's a, like it's a zero. But I actually think it's a minus. <laughs> I think it is a distractor from the world. But yeah, did we answer the question? Maybe. Amy writes, Dear Shipping Crate and Crowbar. Ooh, topical. Um, <laughs> having fallen off the gaming wagon around the start of lockdown last year, I finally climbed back um, to start making my way through a backlog of old Steam sale pitch- purchases and itch.io bundles, which is why I've only just gotten around to playing Lucas Pope's Return of the Oberdin. Not that my opinion of a several years old game everyone already enjoyed is needed, but I found it very good. Anyway, just after I completed the game, the BBC started screening the adaptation of Dan Simmons' The Terror, itself also a few years old now, and whilst it was in no way planned, uh, the two have made a perfect double bill, sharing themes of colonial hubris, death, and boats, among other similarities. I'm sure I would have enjoyed the series regardless, but coming just after I finished my playthrough of Oberdin, when I'm still so familiar with the ship's layout and the different roles of the crew, I think has made a big difference in how I've enjoyed it. The inside of a ship of that era doesn't feel so alien to me, and I understand it better as a place where people lived, worked, and died than I would have before. And nothing makes horror hit harder than empathy and comfort. So my question, what multimedia double bills have you come across? In whichever order, a book that feels different after a particular game, a game that partners perfectly with a film, a play, a documentary, or anything else. Enjoying the pod as ever, Amy. So, uh, I, um, I've i played lots of Minecraft, um, but the Minecraft that I enjoy is the base game. And I feel like if you say Minecraft to people now, maybe they think of something different. Maybe they think of online servers and mini games and all these sorts of things that kind of built around the culture of Minecraft. But what I like is the wilderness it's the trees it's the rain it's the plinky plonky piano music and digging around in a big tunnel and making myself a little home and the last time i got really properly into it i was at the same time reading a book by an a scottish author called nan shepherd called the living mountain which is about 230 pages or so about the cairngorms uh, mountain range in scotland And she writes with really direct and austere prose. And 
and uh, wonderful precision about the mountains and the natural land. Like if uh, if you you might better know um, Robert McFarlane's work, who's a modern author who writes a lot about the natural world and the countryside and rural environments and language and that sort of stuff, and. He has been influenced by and is a huge fan of Nan Shepherd. She wrote The Living Mountain in the 70s. And it's a, it's a really wonderful book. And it will give you a new appreciation of, of hills. <laughs> and it gave me a new appreciation of Minecraft. Uh, yeah. It was a really wonderful pairing, basically, to uh, to read that book alongside, you know, it, it, it's like Minecraft does this really well. It, it generates these these hillside plains, these, you know, forests, um, natural cave formations, lakes and rivers. Uh, and it's very simple, obviously, in lots of ways, um, but there's real beauty to it, I think. Uh, and I, I really appreciate those two things combined. Hmm. Nan Shepherd, The Living Mountain, do you say? Yes. All right. I've noted that down. I will make a Kindle purchase later this evening. Yeah, you won't regret it. I think I already recommended this uh, several times in the podcast, but I recently paired Manifold Garden with uh, Piranesi, and I think that was a very enlightening um, combination in, in both directions, actually. Um, but if you're into uh, a, a aquatic um, murder mysteries, then um, The Devil in the Dark Water uh, is, a, is a fun book by... Uh, I can't remember his name, Stuart, Stuart something. Um, but yes, that, that will also give you strong Obra Dinn vibes, I, I imagine. Um, and if you're, if you're not sick of uh, naval action by then, then I can hardly recommend the entirety of the Patrick O'Brien authored series about um, Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin who made their uh, film adaptation as the Master and Commander series. But those, uh -huh. are, those are fantastic books. Just amazing. Just spanning spanning so many years of, uh, of a really interesting time in uh, world politics, but also just with the richest characters, really, uh, to have existed in fiction. <laughs> Christ. That's <laughs> a, a, a claim. Well, you know, I, I think that's... I think that kind of holds up. Like, I mean, you know, among the richest characters, I just say. But I mean, like, uh, there's there's very very many books, and you see these people develop across the the courses of their lives, and they are you know scholarly uh, and and worthy novels in their own right, uh, rather than being just like a, a trashy serial. Oh, I should read these. I saw the film. <laughs> yeah, the film's good but, actually. I really like the film, but um, the, yeah. yeah, the the books are the books are great. I haven't. I I couldn't bring myself to finish because uh, uh, his his last work he died before he finished it, um, and it has been published in a sort of like a part complete form. But I I just don't I don't want to read it because I don't want to I don't want to say goodbye. I don't want to say goodbye to those characters. There are oh. fucking loads of books though, so this <laughs> will sort of <laughs> cost you a lot of money and time, uh, but they are worthwhile. Do you have any others? Um, the only other one that sprung to mind, and I feel like it's probably been talked about on the podcast before, but not by me, is Sleep No More. The kind of, it's not interactive, it's a theatre experience 
uh, telling the story of Macbeth, but it is staged across different floors and rooms of a building in which you walk around freely uh, as as you know actors play out different scenes in different areas and you 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 will walk through a space and you will stumble into a scene that's halfway in progress and something will happen off into your periphery and you will follow that and it will lead you into a different part of the room where a, a, a different scene is playing and it's 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 very interesting in its own right but it obviously has uh, similarities to environmental storytelling in video games, um, loosely directed first-person shooters like Bioshock or Half-Life, where you know their their stories and scenes are playing out around you, but they can't control where you are standing in the room. You as the camera at any given moment, you can't can't quite like uh, obviously. Video games can be a bit more directed because you know your movement through a space can trigger a scene to start in a way that it can in an actual physical space. Um, but there are a lot of similarities in how those spaces are designed for Sleep No More, which I saw in I saw it in New York, but I I think it is or was available to watch in London once upon a time. I think they performed it there, and the, the same theater company do um, other similar shows. Um, but yeah, obviously, like I couldn't walk around that space experiencing that without just thinking about level design, essentially. Hmm. Yeah, which, I mean, they share which, a lot of the same challenges, don't they? Really, staging uh, some sort of narrative in a, in a space where they can't guarantee where the the viewer or audience will be. Yeah, and what parts of the story you'll see, and and what order you'll see it in. So it sort of it starts to become like more like vignettes that you can construct in your own mind as you walk around and view it rather than a traditional linear narrative. Is that, is that a play that one can still experience? Is it running anywhere or is it, uh, was it just a one-off? Uh, it was, it's run for years and years. So if it went for COVID, I suspect it would still be going somewhere in the world. Hmm. Uh, I think it was still going in New York for, for a long time. Um, but yeah, with COVID, I suspect that it's not currently available. Maybe when this crisis has abated. Yes. <laughs> I'm looking. I'm sorry. I'm looking it up online right now. Yes, it is. It is available to book at the moment. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, Sleep no more. It's not. It's not playing at the moment. But you can book for future dates when they hope to reopen. And they do a bunch of other shows as well which uh, have a kind of similar structure, but obviously not all Shakespearean. Hmm. Well, those are all the questions that we have time for this evening. You can send us a question at questions at creightoncrowbar.com. You can tweet us at creightoncrowbar. You can check out these recordings, which are uploaded as videos on YouTube if you wish, and you can find other nonsense bias there. The address for that is youtube.com slash creightoncrowbar. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon backers, you can back us as well, if you wish, at patreon.com slash crowbar, or you can simply join our lovely Discord community. Uh, they are wonderful people, the link for which is on our website, crowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis. And I've been Graham Smith. Fine, Thanks for listening, everybody. everybody.